So now we'll turn to a topic that you might think is less optimistic, fiscal policy. Uh, while it's true that spending continues to increase at the federal level, the good news is, as Chris Edwards will report, that there is a growing trend of states cutting taxes, and this is leading to increased tax competition among states, an issue where Chris has been a leader for many years. This, in turn, has led to increased interstate migration, with states, of course, like Florida benefiting. These issues and others are covered in the latest edition of the flagship Cato publication, Fiscal Policy Report Card on America's Governors, authored by Chris. In my early days at Cato, I assisted Chris on this report card, and I can tell you firsthand that people in state capitals, governors, really pay attention to this. Governors don't want to be at the bottom of that list, but maybe more importantly, they appreciate the incentive for being recognized when scoring very highly. Governors listen to Cato, they want to hear from us, and when so much of the action these days is at the state level, we're continuing to deepen our relationships there. In fact, last Friday, I think Chris will talk about this perhaps, uh, Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa was at the Cato Institute. She received the highest score on the report, and she was discussing tax reform along with school choice and educational reform. Chris is well-networked and well-respected around Washington on issues ranging from tax policy to budget cutting to providing the intellectual ammunition for pushing back against Elizabeth Warren's war on wealth. Indeed, I think Chris deserves a lot of the credit for his impact in driving the recent corporate tax reform that, that occurred. These topics won't be going anywhere soon, of course, and Cato must remain in the fight for the long term here when there are few organizations focused on sound fiscal policy. The need to sustain this effort is one of the reasons we are very grateful that Cato director Jim Kiltz, who is with us today, and his family recently partnered with Cato to create the Kiltz Family Chair in Fiscal Studies, which Chris holds. This partnership will be a formidable one for years to come, and we thank you for your leadership with this gift, Jim, and as a member of our board of directors. Please join me in welcoming to the stage the Kilts Family Chair in Fiscal Studies, Chris Edwards. Thank you, uh, Harrison. So my, uh, the original title of my talk today was State Tax Cutting Wave. And then I, I looked on the agenda and I saw that Marion Tupi, uh, you know, had this, has this big fancy word, superabundance, and I thought, man, I better up my game a little bit, so I'm calling my talk Super Tax Cutting Wave, which is going on in the states right now. So I'm going to discuss state and local um, tax and budget policy. I, I come bearing good news, like uh, the previous speakers. We are in the midst of the biggest state tax cutting wave uh, in recent decades, probably ever. Every two years, I, I write Cato's fiscal report card on the governors, the last one came out uh, in the fall. Uh, I score the 50 governors on their tax and spending performance and I give sort of school grades of A to F. Uh, in our most recent report, the top scoring governors were Kim Reynolds of Iowa, Chris Sununu of New Hampshire, Pete Ricketts of Nebraska, Brad Little of Idaho, and Doug Ducey uh, of Arizona. So these governors, they cut income tax rates, they held the line on spending, 
And a lot of them have done other free market reforms, such as occupational licensing uh, reform and school choice uh, reform. So there's a lot of uh, pro-market Republican governors and a few Democrats uh, governors as well. You know, people are looking at DeSantis as a possible White House candidate. I would say there's a lot of alternative Republican governors now that could uh, fill that role uh, who are pretty free market. On the Democratic side, uh, there's some reasonable governors on economics, such as Jared Polis of Colorado, uh, but the name we, we, uh, we often hear about who's most eager to run for the White House uh, is Gavin Newsom of California. Uh, most people give Newsom uh, kind of an A for his slick haircut, but on the Cato report card, he got uh, an F. He's one of the worst governors on taxes and spending. So Governor Kim Reynolds visited us uh, last week at Cato uh, from Iowa. She's, uh, she got the highest score on the Cato uh, report. She discussed spending and taxes and also her recent school choice reforms. Um, I think she's put into place some of the best tax reforms in the nation in recent years. She chopped the individual uh, income tax rate from 8.9% down to 3.9%, chopped the corporate rate from 12% down to 5.5%. She's held spending flat. She signed into law occupational licensing reforms. She's trying to shake up and overhaul uh, Iowa government. And then just a few weeks ago, uh, she enacted uh, one of the best school choice reforms uh, in the nation. Uh, I think she's great. We had a great discussion. You can see that online at the Cato site. And we had a good discussion afterwards uh, at lunchtime. She's an inspiring person. Uh, she just got reelected. And she's really, you know, she really sort of struck me. She's really determined to make structural change in Iowa government to try to make Iowa one of the best performing uh, states in the nation. So there's, there's lots of uh, reason for hope. So what is this state tax cutting wave? Well, just in the last uh, uh, two years or so, 22 states have cut their top uh, individual income tax rate. 11 states have cut their uh, top corporate tax rate. Uh, there was a wave of state tax cutting in the 90s, but this is a far uh, bigger wave. Uh, the states with, uh, these are the states with the best tax cuts, I think, in recent years. And just to take one of those, Arizona was a very interesting uh, battle. In 2020, uh, the teachers lobby in Arizona put a, a ballot question uh, on that was narrowly uh, approved uh, that hiked the top individual income tax rate from 4.5% up to 8%. Uh, Governor Ducey uh, fought back. Uh, they challenged the uh, increase in court and won, and then Ducey sort of went on the offensive and he uh, got enacted a uh, chopping the individual income tax rate down to just 2.5%. So Arizona today has, a, has rather than an 8% individual income tax top rate, they've got a 2.5% flat tax. So, so he's a real champion uh, of tax reform. Um, so will we have more t uh, tax cuts this year? Uh, yeah, there seems to be about five or 10 uh, states, uh, mainly Republican, a couple of Democratic uh, states where we're going to get more income tax uh, rate cuts. So why are all these cuts happening? Well, one is um, a lot of governors, and this is a very, uh, um, uh, it's very sort of gratifying that many governors are, are they're listening to free market economists and they're listening to free market uh, think tanks uh, like Cato. And they've got extra money around, and they're, and they're doing reforms that uh, any economist would recommend, which is cutting top of marginal tax rates. You get the most economic uh, benefit from that. So again, it's gratifying that you know, governors are listening and doing, I think, the right thing uh, for their states. 
a lot of states also, they've got large budget surpluses these days, and conservative governors know that unless they get this money off the table with tax cuts, it'll ultimately uh, be spent. So that's uh, kind of what's driving these tax cuts. So because states are required to uh, balance their annual budgets, uh, they, they all keep uh, aside a pool of cash called rainy day funds. And the chart shows that rainy day funds are at high levels now, uh, and the, uh, because the states have had this huge influx of cash, the federal government gave them a lot of money for COVID, but also state tax revenues have soared the last few years uh, for somewhat mysterious reasons, actually. But so these uh, big surpluses uh, uh, have, uh, have uh, put states in a good situation. You know, states, uh, more liberal states are, are filling their rainy day funds and they're increasing spending. More conservative states, they're filling their rainy day funds and they're cutting uh, income tax rates. So lawmakers in some states are not only cutting their uh, individual income tax rates, uh, there's a number of states that where the governors and other and legislative leaders are driving to completely eliminate their individual income tax, uh, in, individual income taxes. So Governor Reynolds of Iowa a couple weeks ago uh, said, uh, to paraphrase, the Republican governors I know were so damn competitive, you know, I cut my income tax rate to 3.9%. Now Tate Reeves, the governor of Mississippi, says he wants to cut his to 3.8%. Now I'm going to have to cut my rate to 2% and ultimately uh, drive it down to zero. Uh, so Tate Reeves, the governor of Mississippi, says he wants to repeal his individual income tax. Uh, new Arkansas Governor Sarah Sanders says the same thing. She wants to eliminate her individual income tax. And there's three or four other uh, mainly Republican governors who have said sort of the same thing. There's a really interesting dynamic, I think, going now uh, amongst mainly these Republican governors on both school choice and income tax reforms, where they're really competing with each uh, other a lot. Uh, in chatting to Governor Reynolds last week, it really struck me that you know she's on the phone all the time talking to other Republican governors, and they're trying to outdo each other. They're trying to sort of you know get names for themselves on uh, doing the most uh, free market reforms on school choice and, uh, and income tax reform and on occupational licensing and other sorts of things. So this is a, a really good sort of virtuous cycle uh, that's going on here, I think, in state government now. And I'm going to be writing a lot more about income tax reforms and eliminating individual income taxes now because there's clearly sort of a wave going on here now that I think we can, we can help influence. So um, this chart uh, shows total state local tax revenues as a share uh, of income. Uh, the nine states listed uh, at the top there, those are the nine U.S. states now that don't have individual income taxes. So the question people might say is, well, they don't have individual income taxes, states like Florida, but maybe they have higher sales and property taxes. So the question is, do these no in individual income tax states, do they have lower overall tax burdens? And the answer is yes. So this shows you that the, the nine states with no income taxes all have lower uh, overall tax burdens than the 40 other uh, states there. Now, I put New York uh, State on there sort of just for fun. For those of us who don't live there, we can sort of count our blessings. You can see how completely outrageous the, the tax burden uh, there is. So I think that uh, Alaska is sort of a uh, unique kind of state because they get a lot of energy revenues. But I think the three best tax systems in the country are Florida, Tennessee, and South Dakota. Uh, they, they fund their governments with property taxes and with sales taxes. Those two taxes uh, are highly visible and they hit everyone. Uh, so that's how I think uh, you limit government, uh, getting rid of the individual income tax and mainly relying on those two uh, tax sources. 
So can other states eliminate their individual income taxes? I think absolutely. I think those the nine states that don't have individual income taxes, you know, they're in all parts of the country, Washington State and New Hampshire and Florida and Tennessee, they're diverse. You know, if these nine states can do it, I think every, uh, every state uh, can do it. And I, so I'm really uh, excited by this drive to eliminate uh, individual income taxes. <clears throat> so let me pick on New York a little more by comparing it uh, to Florida. I've done a number of uh, pieces at Cato uh, over the last couple of years comparing New York to Florida. It's really a great comparison now because um, uh, Florida's actually got a higher population than New York, two more million, uh, two million more uh, folks. Uh, I noticed, you might have noticed the Wall Street Journal editorial uh, folks did a, a New York-Florida comparison uh, last week. It really does uh, reveal the bloat in New York government. So this, this chart shows you total state and local government spending in the two states. Uh, New York total spending, $388 billion, 87% higher than total government spending in Florida. Uh, absolutely uh, remarkable. Uh, are New York government services better uh, than government services in Florida? Uh, I don't think so. Maybe there's some folks here who have lived in uh, both states and can, can uh, tell us during Q&A what, what they think about the relative services uh, in the two states. It is true that New York has higher costs. You know, it costs more to, to hire a cop or a teacher in Manhattan uh, than in Florida. But, you know, so New York has higher costs, but I think a lot of the, the higher costs in New York are sort of self-inflicted. Uh, self uh, they've got you know, more labor unions in New York. They've got more regulations, and those things tend to raise costs. But we can actually take costs completely out of the New York and Florida comparison. Uh, we can compare, uh, this is a census data. The census uh, has detailed um, data on the, on the number of local and state uh, government employees uh, by function. So uh, again, Florida has a higher population than New York now, but New York has 34% more state and local workers. Uh, just looking at K-12 education, for example, New York's got 31% uh, more state and local workers uh, than Florida. Uh, I looked uh, last week, and Florida's K-12 uh, um, school uh, population is actually higher uh, than New York's now. So you wonder, what the heck are those 31% 31% higher uh, uh, government workers? You know, over 100,000 extra people in the schools in New York. And very, there's various comparison studies. Cato has done one comparing the schools in New York and Florida and other states. Florida schools generally do better than New York schools in these cross-state comparisons. So you really wonder what all these extra employees uh, in New York are doing. So uh, a lot of New Yorkers are revolting uh, by this uh, and uh, moving out of state, as probably some people uh, here have uh, done. And the whole issue of interstate migration <clears throat> has risen in interest and importance in recent years. Uh, this is IRS data on interstate uh, migration. Uh, these show you the ratios of people moving each year into a state uh, versus uh, moving out. And this is only, I thought it would be interesting, just looking at high income people. These are households over $200,000, which the IRS uh, breaks out. So on the left-hand side, uh, these are the states with the biggest inflows of high-earning uh, households. At the top is Idaho. Idaho has 3.7 households, high-income households, moving in each year at, uh, to each one moving out. Um, and these are generally low-tax states on the left-hand side where people are moving to. Then on the right-hand side, you've got generally high-tax states. 
And at the very bottom right-hand side there, you see New York with a ratio of 0.033, meaning uh, that uh, three, uh, three high-income households are moving out for each one uh, moving in. So uh, obviously there's more things, you know, there's more than just taxes that drive this interstate uh, migration, but taxes, if you look at the data in detail, it's really clear that taxes are part of what is driving this. So a good example is South Dakota. It's a cold northern state, but South Dakota has very low taxes, no individual income tax, and it gets consistent in migration. Some of its higher tax neighbors like Minnesota and Nebraska have consistent out migration. Similarly, in New Hampshire, very low taxes, a small and lean government, consistent immigration. Next door, Massachusetts, uh, bigger government, consistent uh, out-migration. So, you know, what's the, the upshot of this? Well, the leaders in the cold northern states, like New York, they got to get their act together. They need leaner government. Because New York doesn't have the sun that Florida does, it's got to have leaner and better government. Than, than Florida, it's got to have lower taxes than Florida if it seeks to retain uh, its population. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the leaders in, uh, in, in, in New York and Albany, uh, they, they seem to be oblivious. Uh, I'm really uh, pretty familiar with upstate New York, having driven through it many times, and it's really sad, as a lot of you probably know, cities like Buffalo and Binghamton and Syracuse, they're draining uh, of people moving to other states. And I think it's because of bad public policy. Uh, but, you know, the leaders in Albany, they haven't got their act together. I noticed Governor Hochul uh, a, couple, a couple weeks ago, she's proposing a new carbon tax. She wants to raise payroll taxes, uh, seemingly oblivious to the fact that over 100,000 households on net are leaving her uh, state every year. So Cato publishes a, an annual report called Freedom in the 50 States, which ranks the 50 states not only on their economic freedom, but also on civil liberties uh, as well. Uh, Americans are moving from less free states to more free states. Uh, so uh, that's clear when you compare the freedom data with the interstate migration data. So this chart shows you the pattern. I don't expect you to read all those state names there, but basically on the horizontal axis, we're uh, ranking the states from the less free uh, to the more free. And then on the vertical axis, we've got the net immigration. This is just for a single year in 2020. So New York and California, two of the least free states in the nation, they're losing on net over 100,000 households uh, each year to other states. Where are people moving? Well, generally to the more freer uh, states on the right-hand side, uh, where you can see that the blue bars, they've got positive uh, net migration. By the way, this, you know, this, this just shows you the, uh, the uh, sort of the slice for a single year 2020, but some of these states that have been losing uh, population, like New York and Illinois, and a few others. The problem isn't just that they're losing, they lose people in one year or that this is a recent problem. I've looked at the data going back to 1990. There is a chronic problem, New York and Illinois, uh, Massachusetts. People have been uh, leaving uh, in droves and bringing their money and bringing their entrepreneurial skills. It's very sad what's going on. Um, uh, you know, it, 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 you wonder when some of these states will kind of wake up and, and, and see what the, you know, these new competitive realities uh, in the American economy. A couple more uh, charts. Uh, this, is, this chart is kind of a, a good news chart. It shows you total state and local taxes as a percent of GDP uh, for the last three decades. The lines are basically flat. 
Um, the gap between the lines, by the way, is, is uh, the amount of money that the states get from the federal government. So states fund their spending through their own taxes and then through money from the federal government. So here's my interpretation of this chart. It's basically on taxes. Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives have kind of fought each other to um, a, 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 a standstill, I guess you would say, on taxes. You know, some states are raising taxes, like New York and California. Others are cutting. You've got some states in the middle, like Virginia, they, you know, they raise taxes and they cut taxes. So the two parties have kind of uh, fought each other to a standstill on taxes. On spending, um, that line's been pretty flat as well, and that's because state governments have to balance their budgets uh, every year. Unlike Washington, where they can just go hog wild on spending, states, both you know, uh, Republican and, and Democratic states, they've got to be more disciplined. They've got to limit their spending to the amount of money uh, that, th that they've got. And if you want a new spending program at the state level, you've got to go out and put in your budget a tax hike, which is always painful uh, for politicians. The gap between the line, the federal aid to the states, has actually been kind of flat too. So the biggest um, federal aid to state program is Medicaid. Medicaid costs have been exploding, and that is a big problem. And we've actually got a new scholar at Cato who's uh, tackling that issue uh, right now. But interestingly, other federal uh, aid to state programs like highways and education and the like have sort of shrunk as Medicaid has expanded. So overall, uh, uh, federal aid to the state has kind of been flat. And, uh, and so we've got uh, sort of flat overall spending at the state level. So this, is a, this last chart is kind of a good news, bad news um, chart. It shows you total state and federal government, both debt and unfunded obligations. So the good news is that state and local government debt is actually much smaller than federal government debt. Again, because of those balanced budget requirements and other restrictions on what, what state governments can do, Total state and local bond debt is around $3 trillion. Then they've got around $3 trillion of unfunded pension and uh, health care costs. Uh, federal debt and unfunded obligations, you know, far, far larger, $192 trillion versus $6 trillion at the state and local level. So state and local, so, you know, the, the good news is state and local governments aren't going to create a fiscal crisis. I think the problems will be worked out um, because of the rules in place at the state local level. If there's going to be a fiscal crisis, and there will be a fiscal crisis if we don't change direction, uh, it's Washington where, that, where the problem is going to come from. So to sum up here, um, the uh, state ta uh, tax cutting wave, I think, will, is going to continue. In 2023, we've got a bunch of uh, additional states like Vir Virginia and West Virginia that looks like they're going to cut their income taxes. Um, uh, the, you know, most states are cutting their uh, income tax rates, which is the good and efficient thing to do. A number of states are aiming to zero out their individual income taxes, which is a really great, um, in my view, um, direction that we want to encourage. Um, Medicaid is growing fast, but overall state and local uh, spending has actually been pretty stable. Why? Because of the balanced budget requirements that states uh, must follow. And finally, you know, there is a, despite the overall good news about uh, the size of state government, there is a growing gap, I think, between the states. There's a lot of high-tax states that, that really are in denial about the new competitive realities of the American economy. Thank you very much. Happy to take uh, questions. That is a question with respect to inheritance taxes. 
Uh, I'm here in Florida because of Illinois inheritance taxes. I can't believe that they're collecting that much in inheritance taxes because they're losing income tax when people leave. Um, I completely agree with you. you know, interesting. I looked into, uh, I've looked into the history of this a little bit. If you go back to the 1960s and 70s, most states had either inheritance taxes or uh, estate taxes, and, and they often kicked in at pretty low levels. But th there's been a really positive dynamic in recent decades because of interstate tax competition, because of people like you moving uh, states. Uh, inheritance and estate taxes have been eliminated in just about every state. And in fact, Kim Reynolds of Iowa just eliminated uh, recently in 2021, I think, uh, Iowa's inheritance tax. So. Uh, there's only a few states left uh, that have inheritance taxes. Interestingly, a lot of states are realizing that uh, there's a lot of elderly folks, a lot of elderly folks with substantial amounts of money, and a lot of states have been cutting and eliminating their taxes on retirement, like 401k income uh, as well. So uh, if you're looking uh, to retire, check, you know, look at, and maybe moving states, those are two things to look at, you know, the inheritance taxes as well as taxes on retirement income. So, you know, competition, I think, has had a real effect uh, states want to retain uh, elderly people, and, they, and and even you'll see even states like Maryland, uh, you know, left of center states that are that will be cutting taxes on retirement income. Uh, down the front. In your in your um, chart on unfunded liabilities at the federal level, yeah. is that almost all Social Security and Medicare, or it, it, the, I've only included Social Security, and Medicare there. So there's federally there's. 25 trillion in um, bond debt, 160 or so trillion, which is the present value of the unfunded amount of the future benefits we promised. Um, so, you know, some people will call those unfunded obligations debt. I don't like to do that because it it um, makes it sound like we have to pay it, and I don't think we uh, do have to pay it, or nor should we. I think we should start limiting the growth in those two programs to reduce that those uh, unfunded obligation amounts. Uh, there's a question down you, here. You may have just answered the question. Uh, when you showed that gap between revenue and spending and said it was the federal government, uh, to what extent did Nixon's revenue sharing program do to that gap? So, yeah, Nixon brought in a, a program called general revenue sharing, I don't know, 71 or 72 or something like that. Uh, that was actually repealed. That was one of the programs that Ronald Reagan repealed to his uh, great credit. The, the idea, so in the 19, a really brief history, is the big explosion in federal aid to state happened not in the 30s in the New Deal, but in the 1960s under Lyndon Johnson. And literally about three years under Johnson, the federal government uh, passed hundreds and hundreds of new programs for housing and community development and K-12 education and on and on and on. Interestingly, within a few years, even uh, a lot of commentators on the left were saying, man, these programs are a giant, complicated mess. And so um, Nixon, you know, no conservative, he, no conservative really, but he thought, well, I'm going to consolidate these programs and just we'll just give the states a big chunk of general money. Um, so that lasted for a decade or so. Uh, it was a dangerous kind of thing because, you know, just giving open-ended money to the states because it could have really grown rapidly. So, so that was on, uh, on Reagan's target list and they eliminated it. I forget what year, sometime in the early 80s. All right, looks like uh, I'm done. Thank you. I apologize. I've got to run a tight ship up here. I uh, 
appreciate you hitting on Western New York, upstate New York, Chris. As you know, I'm from there. And my parents had to make the terrible decision of moving from Rochester to Asheville, North Carolina. Who would want to leave that freezing cold, huh? I, I'm really inspired every day by the dedication, the passion for Cato's mission that Joan, Marion, Chris, Peter, all of our colleagues have. I'm also inspired daily um, by the support we receive from individuals here in Naples and around the country who voluntarily contribute their hard-earned dollars to our shared cause. As Peter often says, we feel a deep sense of responsibility to maximize the resources you entrust with us and in that way honor donor intent. Hopefully many of you who aren't yet uh, supporters have found a reason to get more involved, so please visit our website, sign up for emails, download our podcasts. We have a great annual report in a digital uh, fashion online that you could peruse. Um, most importantly, we'd appreciate any of you who are not yet supporting Cato financially to consider becoming a Cato sponsor. We're a 501c3 educational institution, so these contributions are tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. We have no endowment, and we raise our support uh, each and every year uh, to keep us on our toes. And to achieve this vision of human flourishing and, and a thriving civil society, I think it really takes the thousands of individuals across the country who do partner with us. So please consider becoming a part of this community. In fact, if you've liked what you've heard, uh, we have a dedicated exclusive community here called Cato Club Naples. You can find a handy enrollment form in your folder and sign up for the low, low price of $1,000 a year. You'll be invited to private events, uh, but more importantly, you'll have the satisfaction of knowing you're contributing to preserving liberty for future generations. My colleague Jenna Hewn is here at the back. Seek her out, many of you know her. Naples native, Naples resident. Um, she runs Cato Club Naples. But I think it's, it's so important to remember that all of us here know ideas matter and that they have consequences. So thank you for supporting Cato in this shared effort to win the battle of ideas. Please come talk to us uh, if you are interested in Cato. Have any questions about today's program, we really welcome feedback. We're going to transition now to our reception outside. Please feel free to leave your belongings here because we'll be coming back for lunch, and then we'll start the program uh, just after the entree is served. Thanks very much, everyone.